This podcast is made possible by the generous support of Reillusion, makers of iClone and Character Creator. Netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney, you're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Welcome to this episode of the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our guest on this ep is VFX supervisor, Iran Denur. And those of you who've been members at FX PhD probably recognize the name, or I'm sure recognize the name, as he's taught several really cool courses for us over the years, including some advanced compositing courses based in Nuke, as well as offerings in SpeedTree, as well as Vue. He also does teach at the School of Visual Arts in New York City, but today he's here to discuss his recently released book called The Complete Guide to Photorealism. Those of you who don't know, he also authored a book called The Filmmaker's Guide to Visual Effects, kind of targeted towards filmmakers, producers, directors, people outside the VFX industry. But as you'll hear in the podcast, uh, it's actually gotten quite a bit of traction and use in VFX curriculums around the world. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation now. Uh, of course, it you know broadly talks about his books, but they get in a lot of really interesting discussions about kind of the intersection of art and technology and and what's important is uh, root skills as a VFX artist. So let's cross that conversation now. Mike Seymour speaking with Aran Denur. So thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And how are you, my friend? It's been a while. How, how's things? You've been busy? I know. Yeah, it's been a while since we last talked. Um, yeah, I was busy um, for the past year or so. I've been working at Fuse Effects, which was a very interesting transition. Um, so I've been very busy and, um, I finished writing, um, my new book and it got published very recently. So well, that's what we're been... going to be talking about, of course. Uh, yeah. so that's your second book, right? Is it? Is it is my second book. The first one was published, um, in 2017, the filmmaker's guide to visual effects. And this one is called the complete guide to photorealism. Um, for visual effects, visualization, and games. So the first book uh, is primarily aimed not so much at the visual effects artists, but all of those that want to work effectively with visual effects artists. Is that a fair way to describe it? Uh, yes and no. I, I did write it especially for filmmakers with the intention of, you know, giving them uh, a, a, a book that is specific about visual effects that is geared toward people who work with visual effects or visual effects artists and supervisors but don't necessarily do visual effects so to clean up all the technical stuff or, or you know software related stuff and just talk about the entire process from the point of view of the filmmaker so there's a lot of discussion there about for example bidding on how prices uh, of shots get you know decided by the visual effects team um, how to work on the set how to work with the vfx team during post um, so my intention was to write it mostly for uh, directors and producers, DPs, editors, everyone who is in touch with the, you know, with with us VFX people. And it came mostly from my experience on the set and my experience working with filmmakers. But the interesting thing that happened is that the book became popular not just with um, with filmmakers, but also with visual effects artists, especially young students. Who, who use this book as kind of a general overview of the whole visual effects process. So it's it's being used in in quite a few uh, colleges and, and universities uh, and in visual effects um, 
um, courses because unlike other books that focus on a certain area of visual effects, uh, lighting or compositing or modeling, um, it gives a sort of an arch. Um, and so a lot of visual effects people actually have that book. It wasn't my original intention, but I guess it's, it's geared towards both. Um, that's the first one. Right. Now, the second book, the new book, the, the uh, Complete Guide to Photorealism, um, explicitly in the title is appealing to more than just, say, a feature film or a TV commercial VFX artist. You're looking at it in terms of what I'd call VFX, but also visualisation and games. So who did you sort of have in mind, given that it's already sort of identified as a slightly broader but more artist-focused uh, market or audience? Yes, I think you just defined it pretty closely to what I had in mind. So it's geared toward artists, obviously, because it talks about the process itself uh, and the different parts of the process. But it's not geared only towards visual effects, um, because the the you know the goal of photorealism is is almost equally important in in for example architectural visualizations, in in industrial you know product visualizations. And to some extent in games, obviously not, not all games try to be photoreal, but there is a growing number of games that um, try to give, uh, you know, an experience of, of realism or photorealism uh, as much as they can. And because things have changed so drastically in the past, let's say 10 years, it's more achievable now than ever. So the idea of photorealism is very important now to a lot of game artists. So I had this in mind. There's other fields where photorealism is is needed sometimes, you know, um, but but these are the main ones. So it's geared towards artists and of course supervisors, um, but in a much broader way than just visual effects. Yeah, and so you're really tackling it not just in the book, which is great, by the way. You're really tackling it not just from the point of view of like, oh well, this is how I would use an application, or this is how I would achieve it. And if it was like Maya or 3D Max or something, you're actually approaching it. Oh, I'm going to discuss essentials of light. I'm going to discuss essentials of like material properties of lenses, of cameras. Like it's a book that's not aimed at like, I guess, instructing you on button pressing. No, not at all. It's, it's software agnostic on purpose. But, you know, I'll give you an example from the music world or the sound world, because I actually come from there. I was a musician. I was always interested in, you know, synthesizing reality in music so you know in the 80s and this you know that development in music synthesis kind of happened pretty much in lockstep with the development of cgi and so in the 80s we had synthesizers they are based based on oscillators and filters and so forth and their ability to imitate real life instruments like let's say a violin was of course very limited then came samplers now, a sampler basically records a note that is played by a real player and attaches it to a key on the keyboard. So you have a violin player there playing every note, going, you know, every note of the scale by half steps or whole steps. Uh, these, these notes are recorded into the keyboard. So when you play it, you're actually playing violin notes. So there you have, you know, a real violin on your keyboard and you start playing it and it does not sound like a violin at all. It sounds horrible. Um, and the reason is that you only have 
you know, you have something very accurate, but it's only accurate for that specific moment that that note was played. Whereas a violin player, every time they play that note, it will be different. You're talking about, you know, um, a, a bow made out of hairs of a horse tail and strings made out of some animal's guts being, you know, and friction going there and pressure by the hand and a zillion different factors that affect the sound. So when a violin player plays a violin, there is so many things that are going in there that by just sampling the sound and trying to play it on the keyboard, you will not get there. So if you want to go into the next step and imitate violin or imitate the reality, you need to, first of all, understand playing the violin. You need to understand what the player does, how a violin is played, how the dynamics are created. You need to have an understanding of violin playing in order to imitate it. And you need to have the tools in your keyboard to apply these variations as you play. You cannot just press the keys. You have to have modulation wheels or other things that we have on keyboards, sliders to allow you to add different tonalities and changes in the timbre and the sound to imitate. So now if we go back to visual effects or, you know, not just visual effects, CGI. Nowadays we have renders, almost every 3D software has a, a physically based render. These are closer than any any time before into imitating exact light surface interaction. These are things we couldn't do 10 years ago, definitely not 20 years ago, because computer power was just not strong enough to really simulate the behavior of light. So we used to cheat in different ways. Now we have those renders that supposedly, if you put the, the right textures and the correct lighting should give you um, a very realistic result. Yet we use them and we work like in VFX on a shot and we create something and it's using a photoreal render, but when we put it in the shot, it does not look real. So to go to the next step, just like with the violin, you first have to understand the behavior of light and surfaces deeply and on a physical level without being a physicist. To have a strong understanding of, you know, how the atmosphere is affecting sunlight. Um, to have an understanding of what, you know, reflection or what lens flares are and what is causing them and why we get all these different shapes. So this is the knowledge. And then you also have to have the tools to use that knowledge to simulate uh, light and, you know, reality. So that's why, why I wrote the book. Uh, the, the first two parts of the book deal with the knowledge. There is an entire second part of the book where I talk about light and atmosphere and do not even mention CG or compositing or anything like that. Just trying to explain those things without getting too, too deep into science where, where I would lose the artists and myself, by the way, since I'm not a scientist. And then the second half of the book is looking at the different, uh, um, you know, the different tasks in um, creating photoreal imagery, digital imagery. So, you know, texturing, lighting, you know, shading and compositing um, and looking and seeing how each one of these stages, how you can get a better photoreal or, or more photoreal result in each one of the stages. Because one of the important things to understand is that they all affect each other. You can have a fantastic render, throw it to the comper and the comper will ruin it in two seconds, 
or you can have a social render that the comp comper will salvage and make it feel photoreal, but it's really, you know, it's a, it's a joint effort of different artists into that. And I wanted to cover it all. So the name, the complete guide to photorealism, the complete doesn't mean that I, I could hit every single factor that affects photorealism in the world because it's endless. Complete in the sense that I try to cover the entire arch and not just talk about just CG lighting or CG texturing. Um, well, that's basically it. I, uh, I guess the thing though I was interested to discuss with you is like not the definition of photoreal, because I think we we would perceive that to be indistinguishable from a photograph, but the concept of what what we deem to be photoreal in an entertainment space isn't necessarily mathematically what reality is. And the example I would give is that if I was lighting a room or a person for that matter, I'd quite often light them in a way that isn't actually reality-based so much as it is I put all these extra lights in so it's not so toppy, it's got more you know, area lights from the side because it produces a more attractive uh, result in what I'm doing. And so in a sense, of course, if I photographed that with all these artificial lights, area lights and whatever, it's a real photo, but it's not what that room would really look like if you didn't have studio lights. And so that's an interesting kind of point here is that like you could have something that's photo real, but not the reality that I would experience in a documentary sense or in a kind of a documentarian view of that same visual. Do you know what I mean? Definitely. And, and that's part of the distinction between realism and photorealism. You can, I mean, what we do in movies is we fake realism, right? We put artificial lights. Also, the set is artificial. Also, the music that we hear would not happen in reality. And of course, the actors pretend they're not really what they oh. are. They say they are, yeah. usually, <laughs> as opposed to documentary. So, and, and we, we, we pretend we believe it because we enjoy watching, you know, these make-believe things. But within that context, the only thing that makes everything their photo real no matter how many artificial lighting you're adding and how much you're changing is the fact that everything is captured by by camera everything goes through a lens and you know captured by a sensor well Whereas, yes except for i go sort of further and say it's not even that simple is it because what is grabbed by the sensor i mean it goes through the sensor i completely agree with you but almost everything that we see in modern media is then processed with a color grade or some kind of cropping enhancement uh, kind of filtering. So it really exactly. is its own thing. Exactly. And so, and there is a, a part early in the book where I talk about color and I yeah. talk about what I call the six layer approach, uh, and which basically is if you take a photograph or a frame from a movie and you try to analyze the color of things in there, you have to start from the very base. So if you have a red ball, um, red sphere, if there was no light, if there was nothing at all, if there was an absolute emptiness and the camera was completely unbiased, which does not happen, and no colorists would lay them, their hand on it, there would also be no light at all, 
you know, what, um, except for like an imaginary ambient light that does not exist in real life, that would be just a red disc, right? And then I start going from there, adding lights, adding um, um, and, and uh, adding texture, adding lights, all these affect the color. Then we get to the point where atmosphere is affecting color to some extent. And finally, we get to the point where the camera's own lens and sensor affect the color, the exposure setting affect the color. And finally, as you said, some colorist goes there and <laughs> yeah. punches everything. And this is photorealism for us still. This very, very kind of artificially created image that does not really represent realism as it was, but represents a photographic view of realism that could be very highly edited. Which I think is a point you bring out in like chapter 18, I guess I think, where you're discussing like what you might call photographic artifacts, uh, you know, it could be like lens curvature, it could be photo, you know, chromatic aberrations, but you are basically introducing now the artifacts of the photography to sell the realism of the digital imagery. Exactly. Look, I mean, in visual effects, it's very clear because we work with live action. So what we get in, in, in every facility is the plate as shot by the cinematographer with whatever artificial lighting and sets that were there, usually with a lot, you know, a lookup table that defines the color of the colorist or, you know, the dailies a person, which takes those colors even further. And this is our reality. Everything we want to add to this shot needs to work within this color space, needs to match whatever is there. So in, in, in visual effects, in a way, it's easier because we just have to follow, like the plate, the original footage is our guideline. We, if we want to make uh, things look photoreal, we basically have to match everything. The defocus, the type of bokeh that, that was created by a certain camera, everything needs to match. It's much harder when you do like visualization because you're doing a fully CG thing. There's no plate to reference. There's nothing. Now, a lot of the art, um, architectural renders seemingly look very realistic, but there's something about them that doesn't feel real because a lot of times the architects want to keep them clean. So there's no depth of field. Everything is sharp. There's no flares. There's no light spill. There's no like different, like you mentioned, different artifacts that kind of you know, de degrade um, uh, the quality. Now, do you need to do it? Not necessarily, because in, you know, our, our architecture, sometimes you want to convey a notion, not necessarily uh, full realism. But if you want to get there, you, if you want it to look like it was shot with a camera in a real place, you, you got to go all the way with, to these little fine details. So what do I think we're really discussing now, I would call almost like, uh, visual authenticity uh, rather than photorealism. In other words, if I want to make the image seem authentic, I need to introduce those artifacts that I've become accustomed to that were from real photography. It's not an, an, an issue of realism so much as it is. Isn't it an issue of authenticity? What you call authenticity, you can call photorealism because the word photo in photorealism kind of implies that we're not looking for reality that we see in our eyes. We're looking right. for a photographic look. And, you know, I talk about it in the book. It's like we cannot connect our minds to a monitor and see. I cannot see how you see. I, I can't. 
um, I'm assuming it's very similar because, you know, what your white is my white generally, even though some people see colors differently, but still it's not possible to see our own vision. Uh, that's why, for example, defocus in our eyes is not something we can look at. It's the area that we don't see clearly. But in a photograph, you can look at defocus very clearly and you can see it. So that becomes an artistic, you know, a storytelling, um, um, you know, factor. And, and then we also have to be very careful when we try to match it or to, to make it feel real. So what you call authenticity is photorealism. We are not creating realism. We're creating photos. So we, we, we want to be authentic to photography or cinematography, not to real life. Okay, so I, I don't disagree with you. I think though that um, that encapsulated in the idea of photorealism is this idea that it has the authenticity um, that makes me believe it and takes me either into the story or into what's going on. And the reason I mention this is because that changes over time because like, uh, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you've ever loaded up an old DVD slash whatever from a while ago that you thought looked brilliant, um, you know, my, my current perception of what a camera produces has changed a lot because digital cinematography, clean pipelines, it's all, it's all changed. So it's a moving target, this uh, notion of what is photo real, surely. Absolutely. I agree with that. Like, I think that if we would have created visual effects or architectural visualizations in the 1920s, or, you know, let, you know, we would have a different set of rules or goals in order to make it look like a photo to people. Um, first of all, it would not be in color. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I, I agree with you. It, and now digital cameras came suddenly grain is not such a big deal. It yeah. is, but not the way it was with film, where matching grain was so important because if you were even a little bit off and then you take that food, you know, the visual effects work, you take into the DI room and start coloring in and you start pulling the colors and immediately you see areas of visual effects because the grain is not matching. And when you pull the colors, it shows that's not such a problem anymore because it's not the same grain. It's not the same intensity that it used to be. So even within this small period, like, yes, uh, these things change. Let me, let me ask you this. It's obviously an unfair question and you may not be able to answer it, but in the book, you're covering a lot of different aspects that contribute to this um, uh, really great, you know, uh, sort of look of photorealism that you helped define. But in your experience at the moment, speaking as we do right at this point in time, is there any one of these areas that you feel artists that are working in this area are less aware of or less successful in hitting? Like, do you, I mean, I know you've said before, even in this podcast and in the book, how important it is to balance all of those things. But is you feel like there's one area that is, God, I really wish people would sort of get better at this. <laughs> I think um, it's a difficult question, first of all, because I don't want to, be mean to any type of artists out there. It's like say, oh, it's all because of the lighters. They don't get it, um, which is not true. Um, I think it really varies. I mean, I would say this. There is a short, uh, relatively short um, chapter in the book about modeling because I didn't want to go, uh, you know, 
I didn't think there is a point in talking too much about modeling because modeling is the only craft in to, talked about in the book that does not have is not related to color. And color is light and light is color. And this is basically everything that, um, but there is a part of modeling that really affects photorealism is the attention, uh, the, the small attention to detail, especially things like corners, uh, adding little bevels to corners, which do, you know, affect tremendously how, how, how the object catches light. And, you know, good modelers know that beginning modelers may not appreciate how much this can change the way a simple table or a box, uh, box like object looks. And there is another part of it that talks about using procedural modeling for trees, for terrains, because these are areas that require tons of detail. And especially, you know, natural environments um, there, the photorealism depends a lot on, on, on detail. And so in modeling, maybe, maybe there is, you know, the idea of photorealism can be more ingrained. It's not just about making an accurate model or, or a good looking model is thinking about how that thing will render. Um, and I think the good modelers do that. Other than that, look, if you take every other part of the process, you look at texturing, it's, it's crucial. It's critical. You look at lighting and shading. It it's light and day. <laughs> um, no pun intended. Um, and, and of course, compositing. Um, so I cannot tell between these, which one, I think they're all equally important. So there's a couple of things I want to talk about. You just raised one of them, which is the procedural modeling stuff. So one of the things about procedural modeling, let's take like a really advanced pipeline that you might see out of a major effects house, um, is that the automatic generation of the, uh, foliage and the trees and stuff is impacted by the actual terrain angle to the sun, uh, nature of how steep the, the edges are. So you get a plausible set of foliage that's effectively grown. And so in that sense, that procedural um, modeling is adding to the realism because it feels like a more realistic forest slash bushland because it's not just randomly or semi-randomly distributed over terrain, but it's actually sort of influenced by the terrain and what would be the effective exposure to the elements. So where does that fit in our photorealistic discussion? No, that's very, very true. And that's why I thought it's important to talk about it in the book, even though it's not the main focus of the book, um, because the book is talks a lot about light, obviously, and, and color. But it's it's absolutely true because nature is chaotic, but also has tons of rules. <laughs> and things have a meaning to why they're there or why they happen. So you mentioned this, I can also mention erosion in terrains. And there's some amazing tools now that we have that simulate erosion. Yep. Um, and like, like you said, the position of trees or vegetation on a slope or sun facing, um, how dry they are. And I think I've seen amazing stuff being done now, uh, done now towards like completely auto-generated procedural environments that follow all these rules. Our eye is is very sensitive to these things. We we can't be fooled. We get it. When we see, you know, a mountain slope with all the pine trees or conifers looking exactly like clones, we, we see it immediately. We don't have to be a, 
you don't have to be a visual effects or an artist, uh, a visual effects person or an artist to see it. You, we are, and we're getting more and more sensitive because we're getting to much higher level of photorealism everywhere we look at. So, and, but I also find these things very, very exciting. And it goes hand in hand with, um, with real-time rendering, uh, with, you know, uh, entire environments creating procedurally, especially for games where you have to create an environment that goes on forever, so to say, uh, or that self-generate. The, the accompanying problem of having normally uh, LODs, like level of details, that is coming based on, you know, camera position. So it's, you obviously discuss detail and uh, right from the very beginning of the book, you discuss the importance of that. But in a game, it's not just procedurally generating the geometry so much as it is sort of deciding quite often how much detail to show me at any given point in time to sell the shot. It's, by the way, it's the same decision in visual effects, only it's easier because we're work, working with a predefined camera. So we don't have to do anything beyond where the camera is looking at, and we know what's close and what's far. So it's an easier thing to look at a shot, and we do this every day, and say, okay, we're going to do the foreground in CG, but we're going to do the background as projections, you know, and um, matte painting. In games, everything has to be CG. Uh, everything needs to look good from far and from close up. So obviously, we have the LOD systems in almost every game. Um, and that partially solves the issue, but it goes well beyond just, just that when we talk about level of detail, because um, texturing, for example. Um, I see in a lot of games, and I'm not saying it to, um, you know, as, as a criticism, I just point of fact, a lot of objects in the game have this kind of generic um, grunge maps to them. Sometimes it's overdone just because the feeling that you don't want to have any clean surface, so everything's going to have these. But these feel generic, whereas uh, um, a very good texture artist, assuming they have the, the time and the budget to really work on every single texture, which I assume in many games you can't, um, looks at this so-called grunge um, in a physical way. Like, what is happening really? Where does the dust go? Dust doesn't just spread around randomly on the object. It goes in nooks and crannies, you know, where does the rust happen? If you have watermarks, you know, uh, I mean, the water flowing, like, let's say a hull of a ship, the water is just, it's, they're not going to be just kind of random, you know, noise-based things. They're, they're going to start somewhere and go along a certain path. And if you do that, again, even it's, it may sound sometimes like an overkill, but it's not. Our eyes, we are very sensitive. We, we feel those things. They add to the overall believability. So you're talking about uh, game engines there. I thought an interesting conceptual link between your first book and the second is in the first book, you know, you're talking about green screens and stuff. In the second book, at, at the end, you're touching on uh, game engines providing LED volumes. And I thought that was interesting because one of the things that you get out of the volumes is you get not obviously perfect, but you do get some sense of environmental light lighting up the actors in a way that you don't get off a green screen. And so as so much of the book is focused, as you say, on, on light and color, that's a, that's a very serious new tool in the toolbox for generating a final image with actors that has photorealism. Yes, I, and I can promise you then in, in the next edition of the Filmmaker's Guide to uh, Visual Effects, 
there's going to be a full chapter just discussing, you know, these changes because these things all happened. The book was published in two, uh, 2017. Suddenly, you know, in these few years since then, you know, virtual um, production became uh, a, a very important thing. Um, yeah, it, it, it adds the light. Look, green screens are horrible. It's, it's a horrific method. We, I, I was always waiting for cameras, basically for digital high quality cameras to, to give you um, per pixel accurate depth pass. We there was Lytro, it started out, somehow we didn't get there yet. Because my fantasy has always been, you know, when we have that, when we have a Z pass, Z depth pass with every, for every frame, we just tell the computer, you know, everything five feet beyond this point, just delete. There will not be any need for green screens. There will not be any need for roto. And of course, we get a lot of other things. If we have a full depth pass for the footage, we can place things, we can add volumetric effects, anything. That has not happened yet. Not not a not, not on a commercial kind of feasible way. It will, but for now we are stuck with green screens, which are just the most. Um, I I have no horrible ways to describe how terrible they are. And ask any uh, DP, you know, they they hate green screens for a good reason. Uh, the, this virtual background obviously makes it so much better. Not just because it adds some lighting from from the. Uh, you know, from the LEDs, but because the edges, first of all, you don't need to extract edges anymore, assuming it's good. But even if you end up with the director saying, hi, I don't like this background, let, let's replace it. And you need to roto the characters and replace the background. The edges don't carry horrible, bright green screen in them. They carry values that are pretty much, you know, related to what you're going to put there. Yeah. Um, so that's just one aspect of it. There's there's many other aspects of of you know why virtual production is you know is so exciting. There are also not so good aspects, of course. <laughs> it's so if I was going to stick my neck out, my friend, and uh, be uh, obviously held to ridicule if I'm wrong, <laughs> I would go so far as to suggest perhaps if this book is revised in five years' time, the section that would be uh, the largest to be added would be on machine learning and uh, and work to do with neural rendering. Would you agree? You have you have covered machine learning in the epilogue and you, you look into the future stuff, but do you see that? Or maybe you could discuss what you see about its role in, in uh, photorealism. First of all, I also promise you that there will be also a chapter about machine learning in the Filmmaker's Guide to Visual Effects Second Edition because you're just hitting it it's exactly the the, uh, the next other uh, thing that i want and it's true that right now in the new book i only mention it at the end as kind of a future thing uh, i can tell you that we're already working for example on on things like face replacement through machine learning this is not something that's in you know it's it's not as it's it's not in at all science fiction it's something we're already doing deep fake is happening you know, um, other companies are using it. Um, but machine learning in general, first of all, for visual effects and all these tasks, God, I hope that we don't need Roto anymore and that it could be all machine learning. And it's happening. It's just not quite yet reliable for everything. But the idea is there, the idea that, you know, these algorithms can, can learn. 
um, just by by you feeding them enough information, and these algorithm are, algorithms are getting better and better, I see no reason why these tasks will be automated by machine learning, which will be great. But to your point, photorealism, um, there are there are things that I think you know machine learning or AI, so to say, can help with. Uh, for example, uh, the work of a matte painter, and matte painters are cheaters in a, in a great way because they create photorealism not by simulating it mathematically as you do in CG, but by grabbing a whole bunch of images and pasting them together and making it look believable, which is, to me, it's, it's amazing. Um, part of the work is to search and search and, and search for images that will give them subjects that with um, lighting that matches. It's a lot of work. Machine learning can help tremendously here. You, you, you know, you feed the information that that thing is able to look. I mean, it's already doing it because these algorithms that take a small resolution image and enlarge it, they feel it. They feel the pixels in by, by things that are similar. So they already know how to search the Internet and all the databases and all the graphic material that we have to find things. So I think that if we spend less time on the on these tasks, we have more time, obviously, on the on, to spend on the look. But I mean, some of the machine learning stuff is is right at the like. So at the very beginning of the book, you discuss the Uncanny Valley, for example, right? And then you just mentioned just then, um, obviously, doing face replacements. But like that work is is providing for many people in examples that are currently available um, that extra oomph it needed to take a you know, a 3D digital human and make them look like they are, in fact, photoreal in an area where we have hypersensitivity to anything artificial being human faces. Um, but we could also apply that to anything, couldn't we? I mean, we could have like uh, a house. And I say, well, this house I've modelled looks pretty good. Um, but if I use machine learning, it could do the same thing that you do with a face and apply an inferred version of the same house to just add all of that extra whatever it is that the machine has statistically learned from a million house shots. Tell that to the architect. <laughs> oh, we don't need you. <laughs> I, oh. I, I, I agree. I agree. I think, and we talked about uh, natural environments actually before, which I think is also a great example of this, the same thing. And I totally agree because Okay, you know what, with the architect, we designed the house, we all the walls are where they should be, all the openings are where they should be. We didn't do anything less, but the extra little things that will make this photo real rather than a bunch of boxes and will make those textures feel photo real rather than something you bought on, you know, Quixel or whatever it is. You know what I mean, something tileable. To do it manually takes a long, a lot of time. You have to go texture by texture and paint out little detail. To do it on the modeling stage, yeah, you have to go there and slightly move some tiles, you know, so that they don't all line mathematically perfectly. Um, and also, so, um, uh, you know, and you don't want it just procedural like noise base. You want something that makes sense. 
and it goes back to what we talked about like where does the dust go where do the uh, finger marks go the the machine learning like you say has seen a zillion houses kind of knows how these things look you just have to guide it you don't want the architect's beautiful new house to look like something run down you know just because machine learning is trying really hard to make it look um human um but if you put the parameters why not i mean look it's endless so, in uh, chapter one, like page one, if not page two, uh, you have a you know thing about the human eye and a camera, uh, an SLR, I think it was just as a diagram. Um, I, I remember talking to um, uh, a colleague who was a visual effects supervisor, and we were basically saying that the number one piece of advice for compositors and visual effects artists that were starting out is, in addition to anything else you might learn, it's to get across the concepts that you're talking about in this book in terms of appreciating light and surfaces and color and for that a really good tool is just to literally get a proper camera where you take a proper camera that has manual settings with a 50 mil lens and you just get used to photographing things properly because only through that sort of personal experience and getting comfortable with what's going on with a camera can you really kind of emphasize those aspects in your work. I don't know if you'd agree with that or not, but do you think there's still value in a in a young artist sort of spending time with a traditional SLR camera? I would take what you just said, you know, put it on a, on a giant frame and hang it in every classroom because there is nothing else I can suggest um, students for visual effects or visualization other than go shoot photos, uh, work with a camera. It could be an amazing camera. It could also be a pretty cheap camera, but you're still looking through a lens. You're still, you know, playing with the exposure. You're still getting a sense of, you know, it's even it's amazing how, you know, I teach students at, at SVA and they, they get, you know, they're seniors, so they've been studying for years um, or even juniors that start to work uh, at Fuse or anywhere. Um, and they know, let's say compositors, they know Nuke, they know compositing, they know a lot about visual effects. They know, you know, about lighting. Defocus, for example, still hard for them to grasp. Understanding, um, if you shoot a lot of photos, if you have experience with camera, you feel if it's right or not. You feel if the depth of field makes sense or not. You don't have to, to look for the explanation. There are explanations. I give them in the book. I talk about, you know, the focal distance, how it's all these things that are known. But if you don't shoot photos, it, it will never come to you naturally. And if you have experience with that, you just look at something and say, hmm, something about the defocus looks wrong. I totally applaud uh, the terrific work that people do with computational photography, but I couldn't agree with you more. The trouble with computational photography is it produces good-looking, well, plausibly good-looking photos by doing a bunch of maths on them, which I, you know, I love that that happens. However, you don't get what you just described as that kind of intuitive understanding of right and wrong when it's effectively a high-end digital filter that's going on your iPhone picture. Um, I think you need to, as you said, like have that feeling for it rather than just the technical understanding of it that you get from an SLR. I agree. And I don't want to sound like some, some, you know, some old fart who is like telling you, yo guys, you know, iPhones are bad, but yeah. Um, you do like this portrait thing in the phone. I have it in my phone where it kind of adds artificially adds this bad defocus of background. 
sure, it, it can look pretty nice. I'm, I'm not saying I, I'm using it. But when you, if you are going to do digital imagery in any sense, it's not going to be enough. You, you can't just throw in a filter. You have to understand it. I guess we would both agree that if we were taking a bet, I'd bet all the money in my pocket that the people that developed the computational tools for an iPhone had a lot of practical photography experience. Yeah. You know, it's, it's uh, so core that we're not saying that that stuff isn't good, but to really master it. And as you say, to make it look uh, photoreal, plausible, uh, believable to the story that's being told, you really have to get a sense of how that would play out. Yeah, and it's very different from like just wanting to take good photos because that that is great. You know, uh, 30 years ago, if you wanted to take good photos, you really had to know photography and you had a film in there and every shot you took was one less frame on your film and you had to develop it. And, it, you know, know you had to be for a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and spend 25 grand on a Hasselblad or something. But um, and people want to take good photos. They don't want to obviously. So there's nothing wrong with it. But we who do us you know who do visual effects visualizations game art we we re regenerate reality we gotta understand it just like understanding how you play the violin to to make it sound like a violin yeah i think i think there's also a tremendous benefit in getting in there and getting your hands dirty even with grading if you're not somebody that grades just just understanding how the eye is directed because of course, once you master those tools, you can use all of the tools that you describe in the book to help portray a certain emotion, to indicate a certain subtext or to direct the eye to a certain amount of uh, detail or story points. And I think that's the mastery of your book then gives you the mastery to tell better stories with those images. Definitely, yeah. So it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for taking time. Congratulations on the book. I look forward to the second edition of the first book as well as. as uh, yeah, uh, now I promise you things I have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I have to make it happen, but uh, it will. Yeah, thank you. It was great. Yeah, and uh, we. Yeah, and I also really appreciate your your viewpoint in the book. Uh, as I said, being sort of technically um, or rather uh, product agnostic. So this isn't one of those books that dates i think that it doesn't date um we've been talking about some very topical issues but most of the book like 98 percent of it um i think uh, it's just got so much um core value that it will have long uh, like a really long uh, shelf life so yeah brilliant work thank you yeah. thank you thank you very much thanks so much for taking the time to catch up with us Saran. it's really great that we can help spread the word about your book I picked up the digital version of it uh, on the day it was released back in December, but uh, also have ordered the hard copy version of it as well because I thought it'd be great to have something in hand with all the photos and illustrations. I was able to pick up mine here on Amazon.com in Mexico. I checked a couple other worldwide sites uh, in Europe and Asia and it seemed to be available there as well in English. So check out your, your local Amazon.com, so to speak, in your country and I'll bet you can snag a copy of it. Uh, from there. Well, that's it for this episode of the FX Podcast. As always, uh, for Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage.
This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.